Back when our girls lived at home, the television show American Idol was, you know, a really big deal. Uh, and I resisted it at first. It, it, it sort of struck me just the fact that the title, American Idol, I just didn't like that. And so I thought, oh, I'm not going to watch the show. And then started watching the show and thought, well, I'm not going to like this show. <laughs> And the girls, our girls knew every person on there. They knew their name, they knew their background. And eventually I began to kind of look forward to watching it, you know, and watching how these up-and-coming singers would, would uh, most of them be, become utterly devastated at the fact that they would lose, which was kind of, kind of, a, sad, um, kind of a sad experience to watch because some of them literally were crushed but, because they didn't win. Um, and I got to thinking about that, that name, American Idol. Who is, your, who is your idol? If you were to think about maybe somebody in your life that is the, the ideal person, you know, the, the standard, uh, who would that be? Uh, some, some people might say it would be a musician or a movie star or even a pastor, somebody in a field that you really admire. Um, when we think of the word idol in that sense, you know, it's, it's okay. But when you think of the word idol in a religious sense, instead of asking who is your idol, asking what is your idol, now it's a different question. Now it moves from the realm of, uh, of someone that you admire to sin. Idol. When we think about idols, the American idol in the sense of now we're not talking about a person, now we're talking about an object. We've got our pretty easy ones that we point to. You know, credit card, materialism, uh, workaholism, you know, television. But honestly, most of us can't fathom that our addictions, our indulgences, our habits are idolatry. Um... We just think they're weaknesses. If you looked across the aisle at the person next to you, you'd be pretty hard-pressed to call them an idolater. But uh, that's our biggest struggle. It, uh, it isn't so much self as, as much as it is idolatry. And it's not new to us as American Christians. It's very old. In fact, idolatry is our primary struggle. Our problem is we don't know how to define it. We think we redefine idolatry as something else, but let's let's call it what it really is. The very last verse of John's first epistle says, "Little children, guard yourself from idols." I don't know if when you've read that verse that's ever struck you as weird, but it has me because you read through 1 John and all through this great book about fellowship with God, which is the theme of the book. And you get to the very last verse. Little children, you know, protect, guard yourself from idols. I just kind of think, well, that, that's out of nowhere. It really isn't. It's right on the money. Because the great contrast between having a great deep fellowship with God is idolatry. Well, I said First John, and I can hear the pages rustling, but actually we're going to turn to First Kings. <laughs> First John was just an illustration. 
But look at 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings 11. And we're going to look at the issue of idolatry. And, you know, it's so hard. It's hard enough when we look at the New Testament to relate it to our lives. But as soon as you get back into the Old Testament, for some reason there's something in our head that just clicks and we think irrelevant. Or we, or we have to do a mental jump that goes far beyond what we do in the, in the New Testament. We look in the Old Testament, especially when we look at some of the kings, and today we're going to look at a king named Jeroboam. Jeroboam. We look at these people either with stained glass or we stick them you know, on a far away island that doesn't relate to our lives. I want to really challenge you to push past that. Push past the fact that we're reading these words in a book, that we're reading about a different culture, a different time, a different social strata, and think about the fact that we're just reading about another human, another person, just like the person across the aisle from you, who you would never call an idolater, but who struggles with idolatry. I do. And if you're honest, I hope by the end of the message you will also admit that idolatry is one of your grandest or greatest struggles. 1 Kings 11. Let me just kind of set the scene real quickly before we read a few verses. 1 Kings 11, this is, the, the scene is after the reign of Solomon. You remember the, after the reign of Solomon, the nation Israel split. It divided to a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was called Israel. So you have two nations now and two kings. And the northern king was named Jeroboam. He became king of the northern kingdom. And I want to show you a promise that God made Jeroboam. 1 Kings 11, starting in verse 37. Look at this amazing promise. 1 Kings 11:37. 37. The Lord said, I will take you and you shall reign over whatever you desire and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Now that may kind of strike you as a little ho-hum, no big deal, until you understand what God promised David. I will build you a house like David, an enduring house like David. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there would be two messiahs or whatever, uh, that the the descendant of, there would be another uh, great descendant of David, like a descendant of David, but that God would build for Jeroboam an enduring house like David. I mean, the Davidic covenant, which we looked at in the, the main service, 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, God made the promise to David, I will give you an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom in Jerusalem. It is an unconditional promise that God made to David. And so for the Lord to come to Jeroboam and to say, now we've got two kingdoms. We've, we've got the house of David over Judah Now let me tell you what I'm going to offer you. If you will obey me, I will create the house of Jeroboam in the north, and it will be as enduring as the house of David. 
Now, you can sort of guess where this is going to go because we don't know anything about the house of Jeroboam today, and we know plenty about the house of David. But just try to feel the weight of the promise. It was huge. Its potential was massive. So it's a great promise. Okay, so now Jeroboam becomes king. Chapter 12. Look at chapter 12 down at verse 25. Right after Jeroboam becomes king, look at the first thing he does. 1 Kings 12, 25. Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So here Jeroboam immediately scrambles to secure his kingdom. He's the king of the north. First thing he does is he builds Shechem, and makes, basically that becomes his capital. And from there, he says he goes out and he builds or fortifies Penuel, which was on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which basically guarded the western approach to Israel from the, uh, from the other side of the Jordan River. And so Jeroboam is securing himself. He's created a capital. He's creating some military security. But now he has a great deal of insecurity with regard to um, people going to Jerusalem. And here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. You've got two kingdoms. You've got two kings. You've got two capitals. But a problem. Only one place to worship that God has sent, that sanctioned, and that's Jerusalem. So Jeroboam says, if the people go back down to Jerusalem to worship, then they're going to want to go back down to Judah and abandon the north and abandon me as king. Jeroboam had heard the promise from God, if you will obey me, if you will follow me, if you'll walk with me, I will give you an enduring house just like I gave David. Does Jeroboam listen to that? He doesn't. Instead, he decides how he is going to secure his kingdom. He decides, well, I've got to be smart you know, and create a capital, guard the eastern approach, and now I've got to do something to keep the people's heart from going back down to the south. If Jeroboam were to worship like the Bible said, it would threaten his security. So look at what he did. Next verse, verse 28. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, meaning to the people, not the calves, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. How far was Jeroboam willing to go to give himself security? He made two golden calves. Now, maybe he wasn't too sharp on his Old Testament history, but 
The last time they made a golden calf, it didn't go that well for them. He set up one of the calves at Bethel. Now, look at the screen up here. I've, I've given, shown you a map. You can sort of see this is Israel and this red line is the division. The south is Judah and everything above that line was Israel. So you got the two nations there. And then look at the two circles that appear now. You've got one right above that line, that's Bethel. And you got one at the very top, that's Dan. And so at the very top and at the very bottom, the borders of his land, he sets up an alternative, alternative places to worship. In other words, border places. To sort of provide a place of pause for anyone who might leave to go to Jerusalem to worship, why don't you be a patriot to the northern kingdom? Why don't you stay in your own country? And he appeals to them uh, and provides for them a place to worship. And it says that he set up one at Bethel and one in Dan. This is Dan, the area of Dan. It is lush. It is beautiful. Uh, it's like worshiping at Palm Springs. It's fantastic. It's a lot more uh, luxurious and uh, luxuriant than Jerusalem. And so Jeroboam appeals not only to the fact that um, as, as a patriot you would stay here and worship, but he also appeals to them like, this would be a great place to bring your family. You know, have a great family picnic. In fact, if you go to Tel Dan today, it's a national park. And there are great places to picnic and trails to walk around in addition to all the archaeology that there is to see. The uh, headwaters of the Jordan River are there. It is lush. It is beautiful. It is a very tempting place to worship. And he says to them, uh, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. It's too much for you. Is it too much for you if that's what God has required? Jeroboam is appealing not only to the fact that it's a great, beautiful, comfortable place, but also it's close. It's a lot closer. It's far more convenient to you to just stay here and worship. It's too much to go up to Jerusalem. Just stay here. We got one in the north, one in the south. Take your pick will make it convenient for you to where you don't have to leave. But you can't get around the fact that the text says this became a sin. It breaks the second commandment about graven images. It also breaks God's command about he's only determined one place to worship God, and that's in Jerusalem. So Jeroboam creates an alternative place of worship. Um, and archaeology has found, uncovered, this place at Tel Dan. This worship center that you see is the place, I don't know of one archaeologist that contests it, this is the place where the golden calf was set up at Tel Dan. And um, so you can go there today and you can see in the middle there where this uh, altar, they've got the, uh, an altar rebuilt, it's like 10 feet high, it's massive. And this is where the golden calf was set up, and this is where people came in Israel to worship instead of going down to Jerusalem.
So Jeroboam sets up this, this alternative place of worship. Look what else he does. Verse 31. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not the sons of Levi. Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. Notice all the substitutes Jeroboam made. Uh, a substitute place of worship, we've already seen that. Substitute temples. Substitute priests. And you don't have to be a descendant of Levi. You, anybody can be a priest. You want to be a priest? Sounds great. Just log on to IWantToBeAPriest.com and uh, put your shekels in, and uh, we'll, you can print out, you know, I am a priest for Jeroboam. You know, I've seen those on the web. What you can become an ordained minister by filling stuff out. I did it the hard way. You just, you just go online and fill it out. Jeroboam made it easy. It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. It's too much for you to have to be a Levite. You want to be a priest? You can be a priest. And he institutes also a, another feast, a substitute feast. He moved basically the celebration, the, the, the feast that it refers to here in the seventh month is the Feast of Tabernacles on the 15th of the month. Jeroboam moves it to the eighth month moves it uh, back a month, totally against what the Word of God said. Why did he move it to the eighth month? Because the corn in the north ripened a month later than it did in the south. And so it allowed people to stay in their fields a little longer and basically make a little more money. Again, he appealed to their convenience and just everything about, about it was a better deal. He even kept it on the same day of the month, the 15th. Well, there's a timeless lesson here that I'd like to just draw out from the text, and it's, it's a warning. The world will tell you that your spiritual life should be convenient, but don't believe it. The world will tell you that your spiritual life should be convenient, but don't believe it. Your spiritual life will never be convenient. It really won't. When I wake up each morning, the first thing I do, and it's, I'm not saying this is what you should do, but I'm saying the reason I do this is because if I don't, it won't be my priority. The first thing I do after I get my coffee is sit down with this book and the, the, the Lord that it talks about. If I don't do it first, I have learned that I won't do it. There will be so many great reasons to skip my time with the Lord. Now I'm talking great reasons because there's plenty to do on my plate each day. And if I don't put first things first, first things won't stay first. Have you discovered that as well? That's the way we are. It's not that we don't love the Lord. It's not that we don't want to put Him first. And whether you do it in the evening, whether you do it at lunch, whether you do it first thing in the morning, 
make sure that you make it a priority because your spiritual life will never be convenient. The world, the flesh, and the devil will always give you what Jeroboam gave Israel, a substitute. Will always give you, um, will always tell you, it's too much for you to dot, dot, dot. Here's plan B. Here's an easier way. Your spiritual life doesn't have to be that hard. Make it easy on yourself. And uh, yeah, it requires a little compromise, but that's okay. The main thing is you're worshiping. Yeah, but you're worshiping golden calves. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. Unbelievers chase after all these things. But you seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these other things that the world chases will be added to you as well. Seek first. First. Lord, which is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, the world's going to tell you, as Jeroboam did, it's too much for you to, to go up to Jerusalem. He appealed to the laziness of the human spirit, and he established an alternative to faithfulness. And, and I like maybe just the emphasis there when he said it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. He didn't say it's too much to go up to Jerusalem, just that by itself. He said it's too much for you. Marketers. Have you ever noticed how concerned marketers are about you? <laughs> I, not, not, that's, I appreciate that. They're so concerned. You know, they talk about everything I don't have. How nice of them. They're so concerned about all that I don't have. They don't care about me. The only reason they're telling me about me is because they care about them. And they want me to make a financial decision that will benefit them. Jeroboam didn't care about them. It's too much for you. Jeroboam didn't care about the you. His concern was, I don't want you going back down south because then that will threaten my kingdom. But God had told Jeroboam, look, I promise you, I'm making you a promise, just like I made a promise to David. If you will follow me, you don't have to worry about security. You don't have to worry about scrambling around to try to secure your kingdom. You don't have to provide an alternative to faithfulness. Just be faithful. And if you're faithful, I will take care of the rest. If you seek first God's kingdom, God's righteousness, all these other things will be added to you. Our challenge every single day when we wake up is to scramble and chase all these other things that are very real needs in our lives. And the Lord says, look, seek me first and trust me. And all these other things I will add to you. So you see, when it really comes down to it, it's not about convenience it is, as much as it is about priorities. Our relationship with the Lord is not an issue of convenience. It is an issue of obedience. Remember Jesus' words? He said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone wishes to be my disciple, you've got a cross to bear. Now, the cross 
of Christ wasn't convenient. And neither is the cross that he calls us to bear. The Christian life is not an easy life. In fact, I remember hearing Dr. Howard Hendricks say, you know, the Christian life is not hard, it's impossible. <laughs> Apart from the Spirit of God helping us. So, the cross that we bear requires self-denial. It requires a denial of selfishness. There's always going to be a Dan to compete with your pilgrimage to the Lord. There's always going to be a convenient substitute that appeals to your flesh, but it is a substitute. And as a substitute, it is a counterfeit. And as a counterfeit, its goal is to deceive you, not to satisfy you. Obedience to God initially looks like it may be the wrong direction to go. If I do this, Jeroboam said, uh, in fact, I, I love his, the fear in his heart as he says this, verse 27, if this people then go up to sacrifices, then the heart of this people. How many times have you said that in your walk with God? Well, Lord, if I do what you say, then this terrible thing is going to happen. It's this being controlled and led by your fears rather than being controlled and led by God's promises. It's a totally different mindset. Are you led each day, pulled and urged and compelled by the promises of God, or are you pulled and urged and compelled by your fears? Jeroboam was, made his decisions based off his fears. So I want to urge you, determine to make your daily pilgrimage to God without any regard to personal convenience, because your spiritual life will not be convenient. It won't. What was Jeroboam's fear? That the kingdom would return to the house of David. Those are his very words. The house of David, verse 26, will return to the house of David. David. And yet God had promised a house to Jeroboam. If God makes you a promise, you don't have to understand it. Um, you just have to trust. You don't have to make it complicated. You just trust and obey. It's like what we talked about last week when we looked at that psalm of ascent that said, I don't worry myself about things I can't comprehend. And that's everything. Lord, I don't understand. If I do what you tell me to do, this is going to happen. Well, it may or it may not happen, but even if it does happen, that's what maybe God has in his plan for you. So Jeroboam sets up all these alternatives in spite of God's promise to him to have an enduring house. Jeroboam was afraid he would lose the kingdom if everybody worshipped the Lord in Jerusalem. Well, Look what happens. First uh, Kings, you're in 12. Now look a little farther on at First Kings 14 at God's response to Jeroboam now. The Lord had made a promise. If you obey me, your house will endure. Jeroboam did not obey. First Kings 14, starting in verse 7. Go say to Jeroboam, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David, meaning ten of the twelve tribes, 
and gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. You also have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel, and I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is gone. They... uh, It's interesting what translators choose to translate. Look in verse 10 at the the margin there. The the translation at the end there is one sweeps away dung until it is gone. They kept that part, but they changed the part that says, I will cut off from Jeroboam uh, him who urinates against the wall. In other words, every male. It's kind of a colloquialism that, that means male, so they just translated every male. But... God is using harsh language. He's using almost crass language to to emphasize a point. Jeroboam, you blew it. You could have had it. But as a result, every male in your line is going to be cut off. And here's, here's the sad irony. Jeroboam, in refusing to follow God and instead scrambling to keep by his own wits and wisdom, his kingdom, his house, lost it. He lost it. The Lord could have given him an enduring house and instead Jeroboam lost it. And if you read on as the, uh, the book of First and Second King goes on, David is held up as the model of faithfulness and Jeroboam becomes the standard of unfaithfulness. Many times you read through the kings and you'll see that it says in the lives of the northern kingdom, you see it written repeatedly. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Just as David was the standard of faithfulness, Jeroboam becomes the standard of unfaithfulness. One house, the house of David, is enduring. One house becomes the, the, the example that you never want to follow. Henry Blackaby said, an idol is anything you turn to for help when God told you to turn to him for help. Augustine said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. That's good. Let me read that again. Augustine said that idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. So here's a second lesson, a second lie, a second warning for you from this text. The world will tell you that obedience to God will threaten your security. Don't believe it. The world will tell you that obedience to God will threaten your security. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Let me show you something really neat. Back up and tell Dan, uh, there's a gate this gate that's there. And if you ever visit Israel and go to Tel Dan, you almost certainly will walk through this gate. It's uh, an archaeologist's dream. But particularly, and I'm sort of surprised that every time we walk there, uh, well, many times that we've walked there, what I'm about to tell you isn't pointed out. 
and that is that there was a, an archaeological find made in the courtyard of this gate that absolutely revolutionized our understanding, or, or, or I should say it gave a great uh, affirmation to our understanding of the historical David, the house of David. Um, for a long time, for centuries, critics balked at King David as mere myth. David didn't really exist. David is sort of a, a Hebrew or a Jewish you know, folklore, kind of like King Arthur. King Arthur, King David, you know, we really don't have any evidence outside of the Bible for King David. Now, back in the 1800s, there was a, a, a stone, a Moabite stone found that actually mentioned David. But here in the courtyard of, at Tel Dan, there was a stele found. A stele is a, is a military inscription. And, in it, and on it, it mentions the house of David. The significance of this is that it was written by an Aramean, uh, not a Hebrew. It was written by an Aramean who would come in, and it was boasting of his victory over, you know, such and such a king over the house of David. And the house of David part is that little white part there at the bottom. I've got it circled there. You, if you go to the Israel Museum today in Jerusalem, you'll see this, this stele. And its significance is that it gives archaeological evidence to the dynasty, to the historical person of David, that he really existed. But to me, here is, here is the irony of it. Um, think about where it was found. At Tel Dan. Jeroboam had said, at Tel Dan, or, or, or regarding uh, his fear led to what they did at Tel Dan, if I don't do this, they will return to the house of David. Jeroboam was fearful that the house of David would up him, would usurp him, basically, overshadow him. And so he put a golden calf at Tel Dan. And the Lord would have an enemy of Israel write on a victory stele that would be used as secondary pavement there in the courtyard of Tel Dan, Basically, the place where Jeroboam was afraid that, that the house of David would threaten him, at that very place God used Tel Dan to vindicate the house of David in archaeology in 1993. And I mention this not just to show, you know, there's this cool connection with King David and the house of David, but there's a lesson there for us. It illustrates the truth that um, the cruelties of other people in your life, or even demonic schemes in your life, even your own mistakes, are not going to thwart God's plan and God's promises to you. It can't thwart it. Jeroboam tried to reduce the house of David. The Lord, in his sovereign providential irony, used the very place Jeroboam tried to reduce the house of David to exalt the house of David when this stele was found. The point I'm trying to make to you is, if God makes you a promise, you just stick with being faithful to God and allow Him to vindicate you in your time, in His time. You may dig through the rubble if you, if you use this uh, uh, bit of archaeology as an illustration. You can dig through the rubble of your life, all the debris that you find there, much of it your own doing, to find out that God has providentially worked all these things together to bring about a vindication of his promises to you. 
It took many years for this, um, this Tell Dan Stele to be found, to see the physical evidence of God's promise. And in your life, it may take many years as well, but you can take it on faith. Jeroboam, by providing alternative places of worship, he appealed to the laziness of the human spirit. The world's going to tell you your spiritual life shouldn't be convenient to you. But don't believe it. Don't believe it. Your spiritual life um, is not going to be convenient. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be a challenge. You have inside you and with your sinful nature something that wars against everything that is godly. But instead the Lord is drawing you close to him also through the Holy Spirit who is inside you who is stronger, greater than he who is in the world. Your spiritual life is not going to be convenient. That's okay. Push against that and keep the Lord first. And secondly, the world's going to tell you that obedience to God is going to threaten your security. Just let that principle settle in your heart for a minute. Obedience to God in your life. Maybe there's something that you're facing, a decision that you're facing now. Or if you keep this in your mind through the week, you're going to run across a situation in which obedience, there's a line in the sand right at this moment, whether it's something that you're going to say, whether it's something you're going to see, whether it's something you're going to think. Obedience to God is going to threaten your security or your whatever that you want. And you feel like if you don't be disobedient, then you're not going to get to keep what you want. The Lord has made promises to you that if you will walk faithfully with Him, ultimately, maybe not immediately, but ultimately, you will look back on that decision with gratitude that God showed Himself faithful to you. Jeroboam couldn't see that. As a result, he lost the very thing he was trying to keep. You can probably think in your life uh, examples where that's happened to you as well. Take a lesson then from your own life. Take a lesson from your own life. You can't see how obedience can give you what you feel like you need, but it will. Your security or whatever it is you feel that you need to compromise to keep uh, isn't worth the compromise. Trust the Lord that obedience to His revealed will in His Word, even if it seems that it's not going to get you what you want, is the best way to go. Um, you know, American Idol is not just a television show. It's us. It's what we struggle with as American Christians living, um, living here with our fallen nature. So this week, think about Jeroboam. Think about his compromise. Think about the promise of God made to him that he lost and instead choose to walk faithfully. Pray with me. Lord, we look at this king and we just shake our heads until we realize this text is talking about us. Help us not to fall for the lie that our spiritual life should be easy. And if it isn't easy, something's not working. Faithfulness took Christ to the cross. Faithfulness gives us a cross to bear. The spiritual life is not easy. It's a challenge. Strengthen us this week as we embrace that challenge and we keep you first. And also, Father, help us, please help us not believe the lie 
that obedience to you somehow threatens our security. Your word tells us that it is the key to our security in spite of everything that we see around us, everything that we fear that might happen if we obey. Father, we love you. We thank you for giving us uh, your word that gives us insight not only into life but into our hearts. It gives us a peek behind the, the deception that we'll even put in front of ourselves about our own motives and warns us not to try to think on our own but to trust you and obey you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.